And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that on a tree in the middle of a garden, you became the helper made fit for us. And that that tree stands at the edge of time and eternity. And that you do abide with us closer than we can even begin to conceive. And yet, Lord God, we don't abide with you. And so we pray, Lord God, that you, um, well, that you would judge us with um, your word, that you would help us to preach so we would abide with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Introducing the 1973 perfect he circumcises the baby in the back of a mercury marquee uh, or I, the luxury deluxe or whatever it was that was Saturday Night Live but uh, just before that they used to advertise the I think it was a 73 mercury marquee uh, by uh, asking this jeweler to uh, cut a diamond in the back seat of the car while they drove through New York City streets and and then uh, the end of the commercial, he cuts the diamond, he cuts this incredible treasure and says, perfect. So Saturday Night Live remade it with a rabbi and a baby. <laughs> perfect. But seriously, my sister is a nurse, and she used to work in the labor and delivery wing of the hospital uh, doing circumcisions. The pay wasn't very good, but she got a lot of tips. <laughs> but seriously, um, never ever get a discount circumcision because they're usually a ripoff. <laughs> Do you know how you circumcise a whale? Four skin divers. <laughs> and now, if you're feeling uncomfortable, raise your hand. You're wondering where where is this going? If you are feeling uncomfortable, that's good. That's really good because this is kind of like a Lectio Divina, which you can learn about in Chris's Wednesday night class, right? In Lectio Divina, you place yourself within the biblical story that you happen to be reading. So this morning, you can play, if you feel uncomfortable, place yourself um, in, in the body of old Abraham. And if that is a little too much of a stretch for you, for some particular reason, place yourself in the position of Sarah, his bride. In Genesis 12, God just starts talking to this childless old man living in Iraq named Abram. He tells him that he will make a great nation of him, and, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then, nothing happens. I mean, some travel, but really nothing much. Years later, Genesis 15, Abram says, um, God, I'm old, 
and I, I still don't have a son. God says, Abram, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Which is interesting, scholars debate this, but it appears to have been day, so whether there was one star that he could see or a multitude, it's a little confusing. But anyway, he has Abram cut a bunch of animals in two, and then when night falls, the Lord cuts the covenant. That's the technical term, to cut the covenant. Abram watches fire and smoke pass between the pieces of these animals as God promises this utterly astounding and unconditional blessing, and nothing happens. At 86, Abram still doesn't have a baby. Desperate, his wife Sarai, or comes Sarah, she tries to make it happen by basically pimping her slave girl Hagar to old Abraham. They try to make the promise happen, and Ishmael happens. And now listen, Ishmael is, is a blessing, but he's not the promised blessing. The promised blessing just doesn't happen. And then 13 years later, when Abram is 99 years old, God appears and he reminds Abram of the covenant, that he will make him exceedingly fruitful and that he will now be called Abraham. I mean, I would almost feel insulted if father of nations, that's his new name. Then God says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring your Zerah, your seed, singular, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting and eternal covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And, and God said to Abraham, as for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Now for all of you theologians, this is 430 years before the covenant of of, of law, and this covenant is not temporal, it's eternal. God says, this is my covenant. So, so this, what he's about to describe, it's not just the terms of the covenant, it's the very substance of the covenant, the substance and the sign, this is a sacrament. God says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your seed, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an eternal covenant." And Abraham did speak unto the Lord, saying, Yea, Lord, your word is good. But couldn't we um, just wear T-shirts? <laughs> Lord, couldn't we start a, you know, a 501c3 nonprofit organization wherein all decisions will be ratified by a two-thirds majority vote at the monthly meeting of the board of directors. And membership, membership could be determined by a profession of, of faith, a statement of faith. And the sign of your membership could be, you know, like a certificate. You get a certificate or, or a uniform. We could all wear uniforms or maybe get bumper stickers. How about double-knit polyester, big hair, and Bible covers? Uh, how about that? You, you say you want to sign, God. What, what kind of sign is that? Who will be reading this? this sign. How about a bumper sticker or, you know, an edgy tattoo on, on your arm? How about, how about that? But God, I'm uncomfortable with this. Please don't touch me there. That's private. You know, the Constitution says that I have a right to, to privacy. I'm feeling a little unsafe right now, a little vulnerable. You're making me uncomfortable. Now, remember where there is on old Abraham, what that place is. Someone said the quickest way to a man's heart is 
through his stomach. But that's not true, is it? <laughs> well, you see, it certainly was not true for old Abraham. There's another place, especially painfully for old Abraham. You see, he'd spent 25 years traveling from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan to Egypt and back to Canaan, yearning and hoping and trying and failing, failing at producing the promised seed, the promised blessing, the fruit of the womb, the only begotten son who will bless all the nations of the world. So what is that place on Abraham's body? Isn't that the place of Abraham's deepest and most desperate hope? And yet at the same time, it's the place where Abraham felt the most failure and experienced the most disappointment, even in God. That place is shame. And what is that place for Sarah? Well, it's her shame too, isn't it? They share it. So God says, uncover that place. You'll notice um, some skin covering that most sensitive of all spots on your body. Take a knife, Abraham, take a knife and cut that skin off the end of your 99-year-old member. Cut the skin off of your Johnson and then do it for all the males in your household and for every male baby on the eighth day after he's born. The Bible never talks about female circumcision. The idea there from what I've read is decreased sensitivity and pleasure, but that's definitely not the idea behind male circumcision in the Bible. Hopefully remember that the eighth day symbolizes this eternal seventh day, the Lord's Sabbath, the kingdom of heaven. There is something heavenly about this. Well, soon after Abraham heals, or, or mostly heals, the Lord appears to Abraham again and says to Abraham, next year, about this time, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah overhears the conversation and she laughs to herself, saying, after I'm old and worn out and Abraham is old and worn out, shall I again have pleasure? She laughs. God overhears her laughing and says, you laughed. Afraid, she says, I didn't laugh. And then the Lord says, yay, Sarah, <laughs> you did laugh. But God gets the last laugh. Because Abraham and Sarah do, do have pleasure, and Sarah gives birth and they name the child laughter, or he laughs, in Hebrew, Itzhak. In English, we say Isaac. And here's, I think, the really fascinating thing. The promised seed, the promised blessing, the new life, the laughter, the pleasure, did not come through a process of addition, right? That is through Abraham trying harder, Abraham doing more, Abraham praying longer. It didn't come through a process of addition, but a process of subtraction. The subtraction of some skin, some flesh, from the most sensitive, vulnerable, and tender spot on Abraham's old body. Shame, pain, then pleasure, laughter. And this is perhaps what's most painfully hilarious uh, to me, and maybe about the whole ex incident, and it matches my experience. God never seems to explain why. Not for at least 500 years. And now, in case you think that the Bible is boring, some people actually think the Bible is boring, go home and read Exodus Chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. This is 450 years later. 
Moses, you remember the Disney movie about Moses. Moses has just been called by God to go back to Egypt and liberate the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. God calls them his firstborn son. And remember that Moses was rather half-hearted about this task. Remember God calls him. He's very, I don't know about this, God. He's rather half-hearted about the whole task. He, He had already hoped and tried and failed at this job 40 years before. Well, in Exodus 4, 24, at a lodging place on the way to Egypt, God apparently tries to kill Moses. Now, this is the part they usually leave out of the movies. God tries to kill Moses until Zipporah, his bride, grabs a flint knife, and they they can't be that sharp, right? She grabs a flint knife, and she circumcises their firstborn son and touches the bloody foreskin to Moses' feet, which is probably a euphemism for, for genitals. Sounds like a euphemism that some guys would invent, right? Oh, yeah. It's about, you know, it's about... It's about a foot. Yeah, call it a foot. So anyway, she touches the foreskin to Moses' foot. God relents and passes over Moses at the blood of the firstborn, and Zipporah says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Well, scholars disagree over exactly what happened at that lodging place on the way to Egypt and what it all means. It obviously means something to God, but they disagree over what it all means because once again, God doesn't appear to explain. (laughs) And yet 40 years later, at the end of his life, speaking prophetically as the children of Israel are about to cross the Jordan, enter the promised land, Moses does begin to explain, at least a bit. Deuteronomy 30, through Moses, God basically tells the Israelites that they will cross into the promised land They will fail at keeping the covenant of law and be scattered to the nations. Basically, they'll hope and fail, and then the Lord will save them and bring them back together in a new way. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, singular, as as if we have one heart, as if Israel had one heart. And and the heart of your Zerah, your, your seed, your offspring. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear that by seed, he means one seed, as in one and not, and not many. And he even tells us the name of the seed. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So to be uncircumcised is to be somehow trapped by death. We're to be circumcised. That means something is to be cut away, exposing something else so that we can love, which is the fulfillment of the entire commandment, the, the law. Something is cut away so that something is exposed, which allows us to love. And when we love, life, we live. So just as the promised blessing isn't born through a process of addition but subtraction, So the obedience of of love, which is life, does not happen through a process of addition so much as a process of subtraction, the circumcision of the heart. In the 14th century, the German mystic Meister Eckhart preached, God is not found or attained through a process of addition to anything in the soul, but by a process of subtraction, that is, God is found through the circumcision of the heart. Romans 2.29, Paul writes, yep. He didn't actually write yep, but he meant yep. He said circumcision is a matter of the heart. That's, that's what it's all about. First Corinthians 7, he explains that the point of circumcision isn't removing some physical skin. I mean, that helps you understand what's happening deep in your heart. But it's not about moving some physical skin, but the the kind of flesh that prevents us from keeping the commandments of God, which are all about love. In circumcision, flesh is cut away from the heart, and something inside of the heart is exposed. Something that just loves Love that hopes and trusts in love, which is, in fact, life. So Moses says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. 
For this commandment, verse 11, that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so you can do it, the word. Moses revealed that the commandment is a word that's in their heart. So check this out. This word already exists in the hearts of the Israelites in the wilderness, although it will not be exposed for 1,500 more years. It's like a seed that will not germinate until the end of the age. Romans 10, Paul quotes Moses, but he changes some of the words. So listen closely to this. He writes, the righteousness based on faith, righteousness, righteousness says, okay, so righteousness talks. That's a little weird. Righteousness says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Notice the switch there. Or maybe it's just another word for the same thing. Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that's like over the sea, the abyss is the sea, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So in just those few short verses, Paul quotes Moses, changes some of the words, and he explains, he explains the meaning of circumcision. He writes, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? Well, that's Christmas, right? That's something God does. That's not something we do. Or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Well, that's Easter. That's not something we do. That's something that God does. And then he writes, the word, this word is in you. So Paul equates obedience to the commandment with the word, with Christ who is the promised seed of Abraham. And then he even equates all of that with faith, saying the word of faith that we proclaim. So you see, maybe the human heart is like a seed, like, like a treasure in an earthen vessel. Every seed has a husk, just like, you know, you have an earthen vessel, but as long as the husk remains intact, the seed cannot grow. But when the vessel cracks, when the casing, the husk splits, then the seed appears, well, the seed appears to die, and yet it actually is just beginning to live. See, perhaps faith, hope, and love is what the Word of God does, like life hidden in a seed. The little spark in a shell of selfhood is how Meister Eckhart put it in the 14th century. Perhaps faith, hope, and love is, is, the word, is what the word of God does, like life hidden in the seed, and perhaps our own sense of control is like the husk. So what we think we do encases what God does like the husk encases the kernel of wheat. The biblical word for the husk is chaff. And until God threshes the wheat, which cracks the chaff, all that proceeds from the heart of man, human heart, is nothing but evil. But when God separates the chaff from the kernel of wheat, the seed begins to grow, and the life, the life begins to flow. It feels entirely unsafe because it is the birth of faith, which is surrender to love. It is hope in life, even though you feel like you're dying. But you see, it's not seizing control. It's surrendering control and letting the life flow from your heart like water from a fountain or like blood flows in a body. Learning to love is the circumcision of your heart. And it's love that <laughs> binds everything together. And why am I saying all of this? Well, because Christians no longer to seem to 
to believe any of this. And so we do not submit to this circumcision of our hearts. We say, no, sorry God, um, please don't touch me there. I don't understand. I don't feel safe. I don't want faith, I want a map. And control, I, I want control. And so we don't love love. We don't live life. And we each remain trapped and alone like a seed. But check this out. The word is trapped with us, as if buried together with us in a tomb, like treasure in an earthen vessel, like a kernel of, of life in the casing of a seed. And now in case you're not following me and all of this, that reminds you of, of last week's sermon. Last week we said, or we asked this question, what is a person to God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And this was our answer. To God the Father, a person is eternal treasure. Remember, and we talked about Ecclesiastes 3. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already is. So, if you are something that God does, you're eternal and indestructible, to use Peter's word. But the you that you think you do, your ego, is a temporary illusion. To God the Father, you are eternal treasure, and we said to God the Son, you are himself his bride and his, his body. So along with St. Paul, you will one day say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. St. Augustine wrote, if there is faith in us, Christ is in us. For what else says the apostle? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, Ephesians three seventeen. Therefore, faith in Christ is faith himself in heart. In Colossians, Paul writes that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now made known to the saints is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So hope in you is actually Christ in you. Paul even seems to say that hope within the Gentiles is Christ within the Gentiles even though they don't yet know it's him. And if God is love, any real love is God. So love in anyone is God at work in anyone. As if Jesus really is, he really is the light that enlightens all men, like John says. And not just from the outside, but from the inside, from within. So faith, hope, and love, they, they abide, says Paul. Faith, hope, and love in you is the eternal light of God in you, the word of God in you, the promised seed in you. It's Christ in you. It's the eternal treasure that the good father sees in his son. It's the eternal treasure that a good bridegroom cherishes in his bride. Last time, you remember I told you about my three-year-old son, John, the day that he looked up at me with those big, beautiful, trusting eyes in the toy aisle at the, uh, at, at the Walmart, um, having just pooped his pants after I had asked him like 10 times, Jonathan, um, by the way, he was three at the time, okay, not, not 33 like now, or no, 31 or, well, I, something like that. But anyway, he was three. He looked at me with those big trusting eyes after I had asked him so many times, John, did you poop your pants? And I, I remember going, John, you pooped your pants. And he looked up at me with those big, beautiful eyes and he said, but you're still proud of me, right, Daddy? <laughs> oh, it's like burned in my brain, and I just want to scream, yes, yes, absolutely. I would have died for him and his faith in me on the spot. You understand, John's faith, hope, and love for me is eternal treasure. 
it's my love implanted in my son returning to me as faith. It's the best thing that I can do. But the poopy underwear is what John did do. <laughs> it's his doo-doo, his doo-doo, what we all do, but what was disposed of long ago in the Walmart bathroom. In other words, it's temporal, not eternal. But the faith, hope, and love, well, that's the treasure in the field. That's the baby in the stinky manger. That's the thing that rises from the tomb, and it's shame that keeps it hidden. It was faith, hope, and love that caused John, uh, from underneath all of that stuff, to confess his heart, to share his heart with me. Faith, hope, and love is what a father treasures in his children, and faith, hope, and love is what the bridegroom treasures in his bride, and yet it's the reason that the bride also covers herself in shame. And you know why? Hope makes you vulnerable. She covers the most sensitive, intimate, and vulnerable part of herself, the, the manifestation of her hope which is a longing for love. She covers her deepest desire for fear. It will be violated. And of course, it probably has been violated, for she lives in this fallen world. To the philosophers in, Acts, in, in Athens, in Acts 17, 26, St. Paul says this. Listen closely. God made from one man every nation of men that, why did he do it? That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. In other words, God breathed his spirit into dust, that's how he made man, in order that the spirit and dust would then in turn long for him. You were made to seek God and find him. In other words, faith, hope, and love within you longs for the love that is your maker, the love which hopes for you and actually believes within you. But now you cover your faith, hope, and love in shame, for you've placed your faith, hope, and love in lies, spoken by the father of lies, and therefore have been violated. So, what does the good bridegroom do? when the woman he loves has shut herself off from him. Doesn't he speak his word? Doesn't he speak his spirit into her heart in the hope that she would surrender her spirit to his spirit, that they would begin to hope in a communion of love, which is life? And you see, that's called romance. When I be lifted up from the earth, said Jesus, the great bridegroom, I will romance, I will draw all people, all men, unto myself. So this spirit, this breath of faith, hope, and love exists deep within the temple of every human heart like a kernel in the casing of a seed. And when the gospel is preached, deep calls to deep in the words of Psalm 42. Deep calls to deep. The word that is preached calls to the word that is hidden, that is buried. And when those two connect, and I don't know if this one fertile, I don't know how this works, but the curtain in the temple, it rips from top to, to bottom, and the Spirit begins to fill the temple um, like a fountain of living water. It begins to fill the temple, which is yourself. It fills you from the inside out. The living water fills your empty temple with God's self, uniting you with your Creator and ultimately all creation such that you will never, ever, ever again be alone. <laughs> and yet, you will know what loneliness is. It's evil. <laughs> so you will gain the knowledge of evil and always choose the good and freedom. You will love love and love is life, your bridegroom. <laughs> so anyway, God the Father, 
To God the Father, a person is eternal treasure. To God the Son, a person is himself, his bride and body. To God the Spirit, a person is his own body, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger, himself rising from billions of tombs and coming together in ecstatic joy. See, I think that's what joy is. It's the divine in me recognizing the divine in you. It's losing yourself and finding yourself swept away in a river of life that is love. Joy is the dance of love that is life. It's eternal life. And so why are some folks so dead? so frightened, so anxious, so addicted, so depressed, so lonely. Well, they haven't been circumcised. And why am I so addicted, so depressed, so anxious, so lonely? Well, maybe because I still don't want God to touch me there. I'm not entirely willing to be vulnerable. I think, God, couldn't we just wear t-shirts? If on our honeymoon night, having waited for five and a half stinking years for this moment of ecstatic communion consummating our covenant of grace, if Susan would have said, hey, Peter, I'm tired. You know, I'm kind of tired of the party was great, but check this out. I bought us matching t-shirts. <laughs> wow, instead of doing that, let's just wear the t-shirts. <laughs> oh, I, I would have died. Maybe Jesus did die in the hope that we'd surrender to him the word of love. A few years ago, Andrew, my friend Andrew, he sent me this link to watch a TED Talk given by the professor and researcher Brene Brown. You probably know who she is. Her TED Talk now has had 50 million views. It's titled, The Power of Vulnerability. Several years ago, she began studying people that felt connected. For as she put it, that's what everything is about, uh, connection. It's what makes life worth living. Early on, she realized that the thing that unraveled connection was shame. And she didn't know what that was. So she began to study that, and she realized that shame is the strong desire not to be seen. And this was based on the belief that there's nothing there worth to see. But she found that those that really lived their lives, well, they all shared something in common. She called it courage from the Latin word core, meaning heart. So the original definition of courage was to tell the story of who you are with a whole heart. It's the courage to be authentic. She said that these people, listen closely, these people were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they actually were. And this, she said, is essential for connection to fully embrace vulnerability. Now this revelation she shared actually led to her own personal breakdown. For as she puts it, scientific research is all about controlling and predicting. And you see her research led her to this incredible truth that vulnerability is all about surrendering control <laughs> and the ability to predict. So she had a breakdown. In other words, she said she had a spiritual awakening. Vulnerability can feel shameful and thoroughly unsafe, but as she says, it's the birthplace of joy, of creativity. I mean, dang, that's even where babies come from, all right? It's the birthplace of joy, creativity. You create babies there, uh, joy, creativity, belonging, and love. Well, everything she said, you see, is what the Bible calls circumcision. Or perhaps we should just call it the judgment of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. If you think about it, who you should be, in other words, who you're trying to be, who you long to be, cannot be who you are. For if it were who you are, you wouldn't try to be who it is that you, in fact, are not. Who you should be is who you are not by definition. 
and yet who you think you should be is the image of you that you present to God and everyone else, which means that others cannot connect to the true you because you're hiding the true you in the false you that you think protects you but is in fact prison. And this is not only true for you. It's true for everyone around you. And so we are a world of actors interacting with other actors and wondering why we feel so alone. And religion can make it even worse. In fact, it makes it far worse, for we gain knowledge of love in order to act like we do love, and then we find ourselves unable to love and wondering if there even is such a thing as love. And here, my friends, is the ultimate irony. You and I are the very breath of love. More precisely, you and I are the very word of love. Trapped in in an earthen vessel. You see, love isn't simply a law. Faith, hope, and love is actually your true nature and a treasure more precious than gold. So what's the problem? Why don't we love love? Why don't we live life? Well, ask Abraham (laughs) or Moses. We'd rather obey some rules, print some T-shirts, organize a fundraiser, act and act. But circumcision? Uh, No way. Abraham circumcised himself. (laughs) Jim Gaffigan has a great comedy routine on that, by the way. But Abraham circumcised himself, and it must have been a sloppy mess. But how could I ever circumcise my own heart? Make the cut. Call it perfect. Well, Moses prophesied that God would circumcise your heart, and St. Paul reveals just how it happens. Colossians 2, verse 11. In Christ, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, the ego, the old man, the false self, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, not in, uh, literally of, faith that's of, or faith that is the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Who it is that you judge yourself to be dies with Christ, and who it is that God says you are rises with Christ and has always been hidden in Christ. To be circumcised is to expose yourself to the judgment of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, firstborn Son of God, our bridegroom of blood, the helper made fit for you and made fit for me. To come to the cross is to see that with all your striving to save yourself, you in fact have crucified the helper, your Savior. It's to die to your ego and to come to the cross is to see that the Savior died for you because you're worth it. You're totally worth it to him. Faith, hope, and love in you is the true you. That's the eternal treasure. In fact, faith, hope, and love in you is the spirit of Jesus rising within you, his love returning to him as faith, hope, and and love. It's the spirit, his spirit, that cries, Abba, Daddy, the spirit that looks up with those big trusting eyes and says, but you're still proud of me, right? Daddy, it's the spirit of Jesus that hopes in the Father. It's the spirit of Jesus spoken into the heart of his bride that romances her to surrender her hope rather than cover that hope in fig leaves, fear, and shame. You can't make yourself love. You must be exposed to the judgment of love. And in this way, love makes you. In this way, love like a seed will grow into who it is that you truly are, and love binds everything together. He connects you to, he connects you to, he connects you, the true you, to himself and to your neighbor. Not the image of your neighbor, but your actual neighbor. Christian community, I'm saying, is not built on human effort and control. It's built on the surrender of control. That's called confession. 
It happens when we stop judging our neighbor and instead expose ourselves to the judgment of God, which is the circumcision of the heart. I've seen it hundreds and thousands of times, and yet every time that I'm aware of it, every time I see it and I think about it, I guess I'm just a little bit shocked and in awe at its power and its beauty. One of the first times I saw it and I paid attention was as a new youth pastor, my 10th grade boys Bible study. You want to talk about a challenging discourse? It's all silence, gas, burps, and bragging. That's what it was. Just every Bible study until one day Brian, who never had anything interesting to say and I thought was never listening, he said all at once, he just said, hey, um, do you guys ever think about killing yourself? And wow! All of a sudden, I mean, something incredible happened. Something was born in that Bible study. The body of Christ was born. Around the campfire, remember, everyone uh, trying to impress each other, me trying to impress the kids. In fact, that's probably why my talk hadn't really connected uh, that night. Everyone uh, around the campfire, and then Paul, who had been just the life of the party, I remember he stood up and through tears, he just told us how ashamed he was that at the age of 17, he was losing his hair, and he started to cry, and boom, all at once, there it was. Something was born that night. The body of Christ was born that night. If you have a small group or a life group, you know, which we're trying to form more of them, I hope it's not an accountability group. (laughs) You know, where you gather together and say what you have done and then people judge what you have done and you try to make them do more of it. I hope it's not an accountability group. I hope it's a confessional. Because in a group like that, something is born. The body of Christ is born. And then you don't have to do anything. Love does everything. The body of Christ is not who we should be, it's who we are, but just don't know that we are because everybody is hiding. And so the offering that we need from you as a church, the offering that we all need, most of all from you, is yourself. Stripped of your image of yourself. We need your circumcised heart. The offering of vulnerability. And so that's why I'm asking you to participate in one of these Wednesday night Zoom groups, or participate in one of these meet and greets that Chris and Francis are organizing, or participate in a life group or a small group or whatever you call it, or a group that gets together if you don't want to, you know, and watches the service online, or simply that you would greet each other, that you would do all of these things perhaps, but, but, but whatever you would do, that you would do it with a circumcised heart in the presence of the judgment of God. We, we just hired Chris Lindenmeyer to be our pastor of community life, but Chris cannot create community life. Chris can only remind us that we are community life. It's not who we should be, it's who we are, and come to know that we are once we expose ourselves to the judgment of God, and this is the judgment of God. <laughs> this, is, um, this is literally how God makes the cut and calls it perfect. The word of God, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So behold, the word is near you. It's on your tongue. And it's in your heart. (laughs) And he's the one that's doing you. And yeah, it's all a bit terrifying. But it all ends in a communion of endless laughter. 
Do you want to know what goes on in the heart of the Trinity, the core of the Trinity? I will tell you, wrote Meister Eckhart. In the core of the Trinity, the Father laughs and gives birth to the Son. The Son laughs back at the Father and gives birth to the Spirit. The whole Trinity laughs and gives birth to us. So let's drink to a whole lot of laughter. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus So, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. So, what was the debt? We just sang, He paid our debt. You know what I think it was? I think it's that we owed Him our life because it's His life, it's His Spirit that was breathed into us in the beginning. And what did we all do? We held on to the Spirit, we held on to the blood. Our hearts became closed and encased within self-centeredness. And what did he do? Well, on the cross, he began to bleed. He began to choose to bleed. He began to choose to breathe, to offer up his spirit, and he descended into our hearts, and he gave us his decision. And so what was it that happened in my office and with those guys in 10th grade? Well, one of them began to bleed. And then they all began to bleed. And they began to love each other and became a body. And what happened at the campfire? All those people were self-centered and worried about themselves. One of them began to bleed. And then the others began to bleed. And that big decision to bleed, well, that's the judgment of God. And it's the knife that cuts away, cuts away the flesh in which we are all trapped in a prison that eventually becomes hell. But God has conquered hell. And so you can trust his judgment. And now you may ask, okay, so what's the big deal about Christian community? Well, a lot of times there's no big deal about it because it's not really Christian community. What is it that makes it special? Well, you see, I think it's that you are meeting with someone else that believes in the judgment of God. In other words, faith in God's judgment gives you the courage to be vulnerable. Because you know something about yourself, you know something about your neighbor. You know there's a lot of crap there. And underneath the crap, there's eternal treasure. And the promise of life, not just their life, but your life, our life. Faith in God's judgment gives you the courage to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the ability to connect, and connection is life because we are a body. So by way of benediction, believe the gospel. It will circumcise your heart and set you free to live. In Jesus' name, amen.